What's going on, everybody? I'm Mara. And I'm Tez. And welcome back to Sisters Who Kill. Honestly, this is the case where I ain't do it. But if I did, I would have done it just like this. Our players this week are Seth Adu, Sheila's ex-husband, and our victim, Eunice Ba, and her unborn child, our victim, and Seth's fiance, Delford Barnes, Sheila's boyfriend and accomplice, and Samuel Culley Jr., Sheila's brother and accomplice. And lastly, Sheila Culley Adu, our murderess. Sheila Culley was born on October 6, 1959. And she was born to a very religious family, and they settled in the D.C. area. And as a teenager and as a young adult, she worked often in the church. Now, I'm not sure if she was the oldest girl, but she definitely was the person in the family that helped out with her youngest siblings. She did have an older brother. His name was Sam Cully Jr., and he was born on December 9th, 1956. Much of her brother's background isn't known, but we do know that he's been arrested. He's definitely served some time for different crimes here and there. As she got older, she met and married her husband, Seth Adu. Now, Seth was born on January 10th, 1969 in Kamazi, Ghana. He was the youngest of six children. His father died when he was barely a year old, and his mom passed away just a year before this case took place. Seth also has a daughter named Lauren from a previous relationship, and we weren't sure based off of the things that we could find if his daughter lived here in the States or if his daughter still lived in Ghana. But anyways, he spent all of his childhood and some of his adult life living in Ghana, and when he was 23 years old in 1992, he immigrated to the United States. His primary goal was to study IT at Montgomery College near Washington, D.C. He worked at a local grocery store to put himself through school, and this is where he met his first wife, Sheila Culley. And if you ask people about him, they said that Seth was extremely ambitious and he was determined to put himself in a better position. He had come to the States and he wanted to live that American dream and he was determined to work hard to receive it. Now, Sheila was 35 and Seth was 25, but this age gap did not have an effect on the love that they had. Because Sheila was older, she was more established than Seth and she had already had a house. She you know, established herself in her career field and pretty much had all her ducks in a row. But many of these hard-driven, successful, go-getter mentality mindset that Sheila had, Seth had as well. He just had to age a little bit and get there. He was also willing to hustle and make a name for himself and create a household and stuff that he can be proud of. And on top of that, Sheila loved having a younger man. She was a cougar. She she loved it. She got to take care of him, supporting him financially while he was in college, trying to get his degree. She liked it. She liked being the sugar mama. And after about three years of them dating, the two of them decided to get married. Now, shortly after they got married, Seth officially became a U.S. citizen. And soon after that, Seth finished school. And he got a job working for an IT company in Washington, D.C., where he worked as the Director of Management for Information Systems, 
with the Health Industry Distributors Association in Virginia. He also ended up making a whole lot of money working for this company. Then Sheila goes on to open up her own daycare within their house. Sheila's daycare was located in Bowie, Maryland, and was called Bundles of Joy Daycare Center, and she averaged about 15 to 20 kids at a time. Once the two of them got financially situated, oh, they loved to spend it. They was buying cars. They bought a big-ass home together. Million-dollar home, okay? They had this big-ass house in Prince George County. It was called Oak Creek, and it was a gated subdivision. And they bought this home, like, in the mid-2000s. Then they bought cars, but... Now they got their million-dollar house and the house that they had with the daycare in it. So they got two properties at this point. And so it's, okay, you sit here and just continue to run your daycare here, and we're going to live the lavish life when you come home. Like, we're doing a damn thing. We're so proud of us. Look what all we have. They loved it. This is a gated community. Please get the fuck off the property. Please. This was really a true testament to how far they had come. And Seth was very proud of all the work that him and his wife had done. And eventually, in their very big house, they ended up turning their basement into another apartment. And around this time, Sheila's older brother, Samuel Cully Jr., just got out of prison and he needed a place to stay. So she decided that she was going to rent the bottom apartment to her brother to help him get on his feet. And Seth was totally fine with this happening and they were grateful to be able to be in a position that they could help him out. Now, since their marriage in 1996, And although money was looking really great, Sheila and Seth, they just eventually started growing apart from one another. After 13 years of being married together, Sheila and Seth decided that they were going to file for divorce, and they went their separate ways in December of 2007. Of course, they still had to go through the divorce proceedings, paperwork, all of that, but it really kind of worked out for them because Sheila still had the house that they used for the daycare. So she still had a place to stay. It wasn't like she was out on her ass. And they had a prenuptial agreement put in place. And so there was no fighting over who got what property. It wasn't a big back and forth, a big to-do between them. It seemed to be very amicable. And for Sheila, business was still booming. She still had the daycare. And even though they separated into... 2007 and she moved back into the house, things were looking up. In 2008, she received two different grants from the state of Maryland to keep her business up and running. Now, Seth was very involved in the Ghanaian community in D.C. He knew a lot of people. He would go to different meetups, gatherings, things like that. And that is where he met Eunice Ba. Eunice Ba was born on May 10th, 1972, and many people called her Mama Yu. She had two kids, a boy and a girl. Jason was 11 and Janelle was 7. Eunice was also a Ghanaian immigrant and was a native of Bahamang. In Ghana, she went to the State Experimental International School and then attended Kananga Odumasi High School, where she ran track and did long jump. After that, she went to Kumasi Polytech, where she studied fashion design and later moved to England in 1992 and started her career as a healthcare professional. In 1996, she immigrated to the U.S. where she lived with other family who had moved to the U.S. just a few years before her. They first lived in East Hartford, Connecticut, but ended up moving to Manchester, where she became a nurse. Eunice was very popular in the D.C. area amongst other Ghanaian community members, and she was well-liked by most of them. Now, after a few months of knowing and casually dating, her and Seth really fell hard for each other and they eventually moved in to the house that he once shared with Sheila. Like I said, Eunice was well-liked. Seth's friends liked her. 
Seth was head over heels for her. And they just had a lot more in common. They were closer in age, peers of each other. They were of the same culture, so that was a very strong relation right there. It's nice to feel your home away from home, you know what I mean? And they really they were really vibing, really connected. And Seth was on his way to being officially divorced from Sheba. He was like, I'm trying to get with you. She was like, I'm trying to get with you. <laughs> like After Seth and Sheila separated, Seth enrolled back in school to study for law examinations. Now, even though Seth and Sheila decided to separate, Sam was still renting out the basement of the big house. Although they were once cool, and soon after Sheila moved out, Seth and Sam began to have problems. It was pretty clear that they weren't getting along, and Seth gave Sam an ultimatum and told him that eventually he's going to have to leave that house if he wasn't going to act right. I know that's right. You ain't about to make me miss one my own home. There's no official document stating this, but... I believe that they ended up getting into an actual physical altercation. Shit was not great between them. And eventually, Seth changed the locks on the house because he felt like he needed to keep him and Eunice safe. Sam wasn't all out of luck. Sheila still kept the other house, the daycare house, and the divorce, so he had a spot to move in once he was put out. So after about a year of dating, on January 10th, 2009, Eunice and Seth had family and friends over at the house. They initially invited everybody over because they were going to celebrate Seth's 40th birthday party. But when everybody got there, they said, hello, everybody. We have a special announcement to make. Eunice and I are engaged. Everybody says, oh, my goodness, that's amazing. Part two to the announcement, she is pregnant. Oh, and everybody was saying that, like, Seth was really excited to give this news to everybody. He loved his friends and family and the community that they had built. So this was such a, a, an important moment for him. Somehow, after the party, news got back to Sheila about Eunice, their engagement, and the new baby coming. However, after Sheila and Seth separated, Seth started feeling the heat of having that million-dollar house and not having Sheila's income, and he started getting really backed up on bills, primarily the mortgage. Whew, I bet he was. And because of their prenuptial agreement, Sheila took all of her money and all of her assets with her, and she didn't owe him anything, even if she was the main breadwinner. And even though Seth had this high-paying IT job, he still couldn't afford that big old house by himself. And so here it is, according to friends, Seth was wanting to sell the house, but this is 2008. The housing market, it's horrible at this time. So it's either, is the house, so his thoughts are, is the house even going to sell? And if it does sell, is he even going to make enough to make up for the debt that was in the house? So now he's kind of like, my hands are tied and I'm stuck in this really bad situation with the house. Seth, of course, didn't want to lose the house. He worked hard for it. He was proud of it. But it was creating more problems than solutions for the couple. But on Sheila's end of the world, she was just fine. She was just fine. She had her house. She had her business. I'm sure that she knew that things were getting rough or she foresaw that things were going to get rough for Seth, but that was not her concern. She even got herself a boyfriend as well. His name was Delford Mitchell Barnes. Now, Delford 
was born on October 17th, 1958, and we don't know much about him and his background, but we do know that he is of Jamaican descent, and we know that pretty soon after him and Sheila started dating, he moved in with Sheila and Sam at the house where she runs her daycare. It's feeling like too many people at your house where you conduct your business, but that's just me. I don't know how home daycares work. That's just my opinion. But again, Sheila's end of the world, everything was calm, cool, collected. And no one really saw Sheila sweat. However, she had a few tricks up her sleeve. And finding out that he was engaged to be married did not work in her favor. For example, Seth had a life insurance policy where she was the main beneficiary. But as it was laid out in their prenuptial agreement, she would no longer be eligible to receive this $1 million policy if or when their divorce was finalized. So she's looking at the court date, which is in February of 2009, where their divorce would be finalized. And she's looking at herself in January of 2009. And Seth is still alive. Seth is still happy. And it's just not sitting right with her. I don't know if she was a practitioner of dark magic or if just her boyfriend Delford was a practitioner of dark magic. But together, they were trying to find a way to get Seth out of here and to do so without getting their hands dirty. So Delford goes and rents a storage unit. And in this unit, he keeps candles. Like, he's got rituals written down. He has offerings, all of the works, right? And he starts working, and he starts working on spells against Seth. He's writing intentions into the candle. If you look around the storage unit, there were candles that said, I wish you burned in a house fire. I wish you drowned in water. I want you to take a knife and kill yourself. Seth, please die. I just want you to die, 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 die. There were nine dies. And it also had Seth's home address on it, very specific. The way you have to be with these spells, you want to be very specific. but doesn't look like any of this is working for him. So now it's January 12th of 2009. It's a month before Sheila and Seth's divorce becomes official. And Seth, of course, is still alive. The shits they're doing, not working. So Delphi hits up Sam Jr. He was like, he says, hey, can you come with me to run an errand? And he said he had to run over to Seth's place to pick up some of Sheila's mail. So Sam's like, okay. Delphi already has a transponder that gets him into the gated community, and he has a garage opener that will get him inside the house. Now, this is none of their first time in the neighborhood, so, like, it's also not unusual for him to have the transponder or anything, right? So he gets there, he tells Seth to come inside of the house around 6 p.m., and they wait. At 7.47 p.m., Eunice is seen pulling into the community. They have, like, cameras at the gate, and they can see her pulling in at 7.47 p.m. Now Eunice came home, and when Eunice sees these two intruders in her house, she, of course, panics. She starts to run. She's going crazy. And she makes it near the top of the stairs of the basement when Delphit shoots her in the back of the head. And sounds like, oh, my God. He said he just saw her rolling down the steps. And now Eunice is dead, out of the way, but she's dead. And Delphit told him, Now we got to sit and wait for Seth to come home. So it's 8.29 p.m., and Seth is seen pulling into the community on a camera. 
Now, now Sam hears Seth pull into the driveway. So when Seth enters the house, he, of course, sees Delford and Sam in his home. And Sam said, at that point, all hell breaks loose. Seth and Delford start fighting, and Sam is basically just watching everything go down. He will call the police. Seth is fighting for his life, clawing and punching anything he could. And Delford, who already had a knife, is stabbing him. Sam grabs a knife in the kitchen, and he says this is to defend himself because he has no idea what was going down. But either way, he ended up stabbing Seth in the back. They stabbed Seth until he could not fight anymore. Seth was stabbed over 40 times. They drag Seth down next to Eunice, where they are both now lying dead. Now, Eunice was shot once in the back of the head, and Seth is stabbed over 40 times. So there's blood everywhere. And they try and clean it up, but they realize it's pointless because it's a hell of a fucking mess. They hop into Eunice's car, and they leave the scene. They drive Eunice's car somewhere down the street. They leave the keys in it, hoping that somebody else is going to come see this car here and steal it for themselves. Because also PG County, they're in the nice part of PG County, but I heard that PG County is get rough. They There's some rough riders out there. You know what I'm saying? It's a little, I've met some girls from PG County and they are not women that I would like to be in fights with. Yeah, they was hoping somebody would just finish the job and Still that car. They walk a few blocks back to Sheila's house. Seth and Eunice, they just laid there for two days, rotting in that house. Now, not hearing from Seth in two days immediately put up red flags for his family. They always hear from Seth, and pretty consistently. Like we said, he loves his family. He loves his friends. He loves the community that, that he has built. And so when his family hasn't heard from him, all his cousins come together and they pull up at the house. I know that's right. Then on January 14th, 2009, at 10.30 a.m., Seth's cousin, David Sarpong, calls 911. And he's like, yes, I'm at my cousin's house. I'm right outside. We're trying to get in. We haven't heard from him in a couple of days. This is very concerning for us. We just want somebody to come by. We see his car. Nobody's answering the door. We don't see his fiance's car, but maybe something happened to them. Maybe they hurt themselves. This is a big house. They're shop objects. We just need somebody to come by. The police arrive on the scene. And because there was a fear that a pregnant woman was in danger, they automatically went into the house. And that's when they stumbled into a bloody mess. As they walked inside, they found a, a significant amount of blood that leads to the stairs and then to the basement. The amount of blood led police to believe that there was a struggle of some sort. And then at the bottom of the stairs, that's when they see the bodies of Seth and Eunice. They can clearly see that Seth has been stabbed, and they can clearly see that Eunice has been shot in the head. At first, the police were very puzzled because we see two victims. We see that they're dead right next to each other, but their cause of death is completely different. So what could this have possibly been? They look around. They see no murder weapon of any sort. They don't see a knife. They don't see a gun. They find the bodies, and they see the blood smeared all over the carpet and the furniture. And it's clear that there was a fight a real struggle that happened in the home. And this makes them think maybe there's more than one assailant. So the foyer of the house has two set of stairs on each side, and they go up to the top. Then they also had stairs that go downstairs to the basement. On the hardwood floor, they found two distinct sets of boot footprints left on the crime scene, which means that there was more than one assailant. And 
the stairs themselves had smeared blood on them. And it showed them that, okay, at least one of these bodies, probably Seth's, was drugged to its final resting location. Because of the amount of blood in the dining room, the theory is that it was an attack on Seth that started there. Because of the amount of blood found in the dining room, they assumed that the attack started there, and then he, of course, was drugged to where he was found. They could also tell that Seth put up a pretty good fight against his attackers. This was clearly a homicide, so the detectives were like, okay, we need to call the homicide detectives to the scene. Detectives Anthony Schgartner and William Watts and Corporal Benjamin Brown were assigned to this case. After the removal of the bodies, police conducted a luminol test on the entire house. The luminol test had that shit lit up like a Christmas tree. There were spots of blood everywhere, and you can see that the attackers tried to clean it up, but it's everywhere. Now, David, who's still waiting outside, was told that both Eunice and Seth were what appeared to be murdered. And David goes on to share this news with the rest of the family. And then they asked David if Seth had any unresolved issues or peace with anybody, who would kill him and over what. And David's like, the only problem that Seth's been having that I know of is he's been trying to pay the mortgage on his $1 million house. David tells the police he's not sure if Seth's money problems could have been related to the murders. Also, they stole Eunice's Mercedes. Maybe they were there for money? I'm just all confused. I really don't know. I can't even wrap my head around that they're gone. The police are now thinking whoever's responsible for their crime is the one who stole the car and drove it out of the subdivision. They put an APB out on Eunice's car, and to their surprise, they learned the car has already been recovered 10 miles away. Okay. Turns out the car was parked on the street with the keys and the purse still inside, and nothing was missing. Her license is there. Her credit card is there. Everything was still found inside her purse. So the police is like, looks like somebody wanted her car deliberately stolen, but then a good Samaritan goes and calls the police. With this piece of evidence, police are like, okay, looks like it's not a robbery. Somebody tried to get it robbed and set up somebody to get it robbed, and that still ain't worked. The police look back at the body and how Eunice and Seth were killed and trying to see if this can give them some more answers. Again, Eunice is shot once in the head. And although that's personal, it's not nearly as personal as Seth getting stabbed 40 fucking times, right? This is telling the police, somebody knows these people. Whoever killed them knows these people, right? Seth is definitely the intended target. Now, Eunice might have been collateral damage, but somebody definitely wanted Seth to die. So the medical examiner then determines that there's no particular stab wound to Seth that causes death. It's he bled out. He just succumbed to the injuries. He had a lot of defensive wounds. And the ME found DNA under Seth's nails, which they thought could lead them to at least one of the assailants. So they collect the DNA and they send it off for testing. Everybody in the neighborhood, all the neighbors of Seth and Eunice, they were shocked that this could even happen. This is a gated community. We've got cameras. We've got security guards. Can't just anybody get on this property? How could this possibly have happened? As they await the DNA test results for Seth's defensive wounds, detectives get a call from one of Seth's nephews. His name is Daniel Poku. And Daniel explains to the police that he was once married to Sheila, although they were now separated, almost getting a divorce. I think he actually said they were divorced. Most people don't know when your exact divorce day is. He also said that Sheila's brother, Sam, rented out the basement apartment and that the two of them were having some issues. And 
Seth kicked Sam out of the house. So police are like, okay, thank you for this lead. It's time for us to locate Sam. Before they go to Sam, of course, they have to notify Sheila. She's the next of kin. Sam is her brother. So they go. They talk to Sheila. There's so many S's in this story. They go to Sheila. They tell her about Seth and Eunice being murdered. And when they talk to her, she initially is visibly shocked. And they said that she was very forthcoming about information. She told them that her and Seth were married once and that they recently got a divorce. And when they divorced, everything seemed okay. They really didn't have any huge issue. They did talk occasionally, but it was nothing serious, very just about our business. And then when they asked about Seth and Sam's relationship, she told them that they did argue. Seth kicked him out, and that was pretty much the end of it. Sam didn't hold any grudges, and neither did Seth, as far as she knew. She then told them that Sam had actually left town well before any of this happened and that he was in New Jersey visiting some friends. So there's no way that he could have been involved in this at any point. And they were like, okay, do you have a number for us to reach Sam? And she was like, "Mm, no, not really. Like, he doesn't have a cell phone. He's fresh out of prison, really. So I don't have a way to contact him myself. And this was very suspicious to the investigators. So they were just like, we're going to keep our eye on that. Now, I read on a Ghanaian website that Seth's body, maybe Eunice's as well, but definitely Seth's body was cremated before the family was able to perform traditional funeral rites. And that was mainly Sheila's doing. She's the next of kin. They technically weren't fully divorced yet. So legally, she was his wife and she had say so. The police were determined to figure out who the killers were and how they got into the gated community in the first place. Because everybody knows there's security cameras, there's security guards. The only way that you would have been able to get into that community without going past the security guards is if you had the transponder. Now, the transponder. It's like this button that you can open the gates of the residence and you're able to have full access. And they only received three transponders when they moved into that neighborhood initially. So they called Sheila to ask her if she still had her transponder from the community. And she said, no, I do not. Detectives checked the transponder log and saw that the third transponder was used around 6 p.m. January 12th, 2009. When I look at the surveillance videos, I see a dark minivan that uses a transponder on the night of the murder, but they're unable to tell who is driving it. They don't know if there's more than one person in the car. They check the license plate. It's obscured. It's either covered up or it's been taken off completely. Okay, it's not giving many clues here. And there's obviously some planning, right, because you did not want me to know who was driving this car. You took extra measures to make sure we didn't know who was driving the car. Shortly after arriving at 6, the van leaves just a few minutes later. At 7.47, Eunice is seen pulling into the community. At 8.29, Seth is seen pulling into the community. And then a few hours after that, Eunice is carsing, leaving the community. Now, the police speculate that Eunice and Seth were dead by the time the car was seen leaving again, which means that the killers waited for both Eunice and Seth to get home to murder them. This is adding to their theory that Seth is the intended target because, you know, if Eunice surprised you, sure, but you knew that Seth was going to come home and you did not leave until you got him. So this then leads him to believe that the couple was killed on January 12th. So they're looking at the transponder records and they see that the third transponder was used again. 
but on a different car. And this time, the plates were visible to the police. So they run the tags, and the car was registered to a Delford Barnes. Now, when they go to find Delford's last known address, they said, this looks awfully familiar. Haven't we been there before? They said, yeah, you know what that is? That's Sheila House. Fast forward to February 18th. I think all this stuff just took some time. But on February 18th of 2009, the detectives go back to Sheila's house with a search warrant for her house and Delford's car. Now, Delford was also at the house, and he ended up being taken to the police station to answer some questions. But before they left, they asked Sheila, what is the nature... What is the nature of the relationship between you and Delford? And does he live here? Because he's got your same address listed. And she says, that's my man. They've been together for some time now. He's been living with her for a few months. They together. Then they also ask if Delford has any reason to want either Eunice or Seth dead. And she's like, none that I can think of. Corporal Brown and two other officers were conducting surveillance outside Sheila's house. At around 6.40 p.m., Delford and two other unknown individuals left her apartment in Delford's Mercedes. Now, the police stopped them within one block of the house and identified themselves as police and explained how they were investigating two murders. Delford agrees to go to the police station so that they can collect his fingerprints and DNA. Delford was transported to the police station by Detective John Piazza, and oddly enough, he was allowed to sit in the front seat but he was handcuffed. He was then put into an interview room where he was uncuffed and the room door was not locked, and Delford only asked once to leave the room to use the bathroom after he stayed in the room for the next few hours without asking to leave. The, the two people who were riding with Delford were also transported to the police station by Detective Watts and Detective Stratner, and Corporal Brown executed a search warrant on Sheila's house. But before the search was over, they take Sheila to the station and this is at 725 for question. And they questioned her for approximately four hours. The search on Sheila's house was done around 9, 9.30 p.m. And when they searched Sheila's house, they were unable to find the transponder. Even though they didn't find the transponder, they found a pair of boots. And they were like, ooh, are these boots possibly a match to the boot prints left at the crime scene? We don't know. Let's take them and find out. They also found a storage unit receipt with Delford's name on it. They then asked Sheila's two employees if it was possible at all for Sheila to have been involved in the murders, and they said absolutely not. According to them, she was at home on the day and the evening that this murder took place, but they did get a cell phone number that they said belonged to Sam. And they were like, oh, Sam has a cell phone number after all. This also made them realize that Sheila knows more than what she was leading on. Is it possible that she was involved in some capacity? They requested a warrant for her financial records, and then they were given one. Once they got the records back, they learned that Seth and Sheila both had a number of policies out on one another, and one in particular showed Sheila as the beneficiary. That was that $1 million policy that she would only get if they were still married and she would not receive if they were divorced. And their divorce was set to be finalized a month after all of this took place. So it's making them go, Hmm. They soon learned that after he died, within a day of her being notified by the police, she went and she tried to receive the policy. And they were like, this sounds like a clear motive of them wanting Seth dead. They go back and they're still talking to Delford and they say, hey, hey Delford, 
We found this receipt at the house. It's got your name on it for the storage unit. Is it yours? He says, yes. And they're like, great. Go ahead and sign this consent saying that we can search it. And he says, okay. They're executing this search of the storage unit, and they find a bunch of shit. They describe these things. They say they look like they could be part of some religion or different practices. And they feel like the most interesting piece of evidence that they collected were the candles that Delphar had etched words into telling him to die and whatnot. One of the candles had a popular voodoo saying. They didn't say what popular voodoo setting, but one of them had that etched in it as well. And after they find the candles, they're like, all right, Delphar, we're going to go ahead and charge you with the premeditated murder of Seth and Eunice and conspiracy to commit murder and use of a handgun in commission of a felony and burglary. Boom. How about that? Now they switch their focus back to Sam and they try and locate Sam. They request a warrant for his cell phone GPS records and they use this to locate his whereabouts. Your boy's in New Jersey. So on March 10th, 2009, New Jersey police placed Sam into custody. And as soon as he's given a chance, Sam told the police everything they wanted to know. They interrogating him. It sounded like, I had a feeling y'all was coming. And he said, if I know what I know now, I will never win. So he starts telling, he's, he's not hesitant at all to tell these cops what they want to know. And he tells him, Delphit had the transponder to get into the neighborhood. And they follow, they go inside the house or whatever. And then Eunice shows up. Eunice surprises him. And she's scared, of course, too. Sam said she was in the stairs. All of this, uh, you know, so I got away from her. Then next thing Sam know, Eunice running for the stairs. Delphit just going to shoot her in the back of the head. He said, I said, oh, my God. He said, I looked down the steps, and there she was, just rolling down the steps. Sam continues to tell the story, saying, now, at this point, Delford is insisting that they stay. Sam said, I heard when he drove up. The detective said, and what does Sam do when he comes in? And he says, oh, my God, he went off. And then all hell broke out. And that's when Seth and Delford start fighting. And he's like, they fighting all over the house, everywhere. So then the detective say, who grabbed the knife first? You or Sam? He said, I don't know. It just all happened so fast. I don't know. So the detective say, and the knife you had, what did it look like? He said, it's that knife you got in the kitchen. They said, so it was a kitchen knife. Yeah. And where did you stab him? He said, in the back. Now he continues to tell the story. They drag him next to Eunice's body. They drop off Eunice's car or whatever. And they trying to push him. Okay, and what did Sheila do? And tell me where Sheila helped you. And he was like, my sister ain't had nothing to do with this. My sister ain't had nothing to do with this. But at the end of the story, your boy got too comfortable telling, you know, he, he wasn't trying to fight shit. But your boy got a little too comfortable. And they said, where's the transponder now? And he said, I don't know. He probably gave it back to uh, Sheila. After his confession... Sam was arrested for first-degree murder. Delford is already detained. And after both of their arrests, they took those boots that they found and they compared them to the boot prints that they found at the scene. And what do you know? They were a match. Now that Sam and Delford were in custody, they could take their DNA and compare it to the DNA that they found under Seth's nails. And guess what? Delford's DNA was a match. In March of 2009, 
Sam decides that he is going to plead guilty to the murder of Seth and Eunice, and he agreed that in exchange for his guilty plea, he would testify in Delford's trial. He ended up getting life in prison with the possibility of parole as punishment. Delford then goes to trial with Sam as the state's star witness. His trial lasted for about two weeks, and he was ultimately found guilty on two counts of first-degree murder and was given life in prison without parole. In March of 2014, Delford appealed his conviction, claiming that the evidence found in the storage locker, mainly the candle, was the tainted fruit they obtained during an unlawful detention, noting that they kept him for several hours at the police station, and it was unlawful because it took them over three hours to collect his DNA and fingerprints. He felt like he was under arrest, and that appeal was denied because you signed a consent saying that they could search your thing, Bookie Bear. But it wasn't until after Delford's trial that they were like, you know what? I think we need to build a case against Sheila because they believe that she was the mastermind behind this entire thing. They started to figure out what case they had against her. They interviewed friends and families of the couple, and they t- it turns out that it wasn't so amicable as Sheila described it to be. She felt like he used her. She already was on her feet. She supported him, married him so that he could become a U.S. citizen. She supported him the entire time that he was getting his degree and starting off in this new career. And as soon as he starts getting really on his feet, he decides that he wants to not be with her anymore. They theorize that Sheila soon became bitter because Seth just threw her away, especially when she was there holding him down financially. And the final straw was the fact that He announced that he was engaged and having a child before their divorce was even finalized. And I do feel like that was fucked up. You could have at least waited a month (laughs) until our divorce was finalized. And they soon realized that was enough motive for Sheila to want Seth dead. And she asked her boyfriend if he knew how to make that happen. He said that he did with the religious practices that he had under his sleeve. And when it seemed like that wasn't working, she decided that they needed to take things to another level. So she was arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Now, police are still trying to figure out who wrote on the candle. They did have handwriting experts come in to try and determine if it was Sheila or Delford that wrote on the candle. And an expert said that it was Sheila's handwriting on that candle, and this was her intention for him to die. So she was formally charged on January 10th, 2012, and on June 1st, 2012, she decided that she was not going to go to trial, and instead she entered a plea deal for conspiracy to commit murder. She did an Alfred plea, which means that she doesn't admit guilt, but she acknowledges that there is enough evidence to convict her. She was sentenced to 20 years in prison, and a part of her plea was that she had to at least serve 10 years, but no more than 20 years. She did not appeal that, And she ended up being released in 2021 after she served 10 years in prison. Her current whereabouts are unknown, but I think it's safe to assume that she still lives in Maryland. Delford is being housed at the Maryland Department of Corrections in Towson, Maryland. And Seth is remembered as someone who stayed true to their country and only immigrated to the U.S. to seek a better life. The Ghanaian-American mayor, who was the L.A. mayoral candidate, said, This about Eunice, quote, Ghana has lost a daughter and the entire continent of Africa has lost a beauty queen, end quote. And this is a short story of Sheila Adu. Oh, Sheila. Oh, Sheila. 
All right, y'all. It's time for... Well, I'm not black. I'm OJ. I didn't do it, but if I did, this is how I would have got away with it. You made everybody so well do your dirty work, girl. I think and 10 years for something that you very much intended, down for that for you. Not great, but whatever. I would have instructed them to maybe case the joint a little bit more so they actually knew their schedule so that Eunice wasn't a victim of this crime. I'm surprised that they only got, well, they're up north because, you know, if they was in, like, Alabama, they would have got three counts of murder charges because of the unborn baby. But I guess it just depends on the state that you're in. Or I would have had them case the joint and then maybe actually burn down the house. Ooh, you know what? You should have gone, changed all the locks on the door because they entered through the garage, right? Change all the locks on the door except for the garage. And then when they go into the house, have we used to have locks on our door that you had to have a key on the inside. So they couldn't get out of the house and you could have burned them. And they couldn't escape. Yeah, I ain't do it, but if I did, I probably would have drove that car a little further out. I don't know, she chose good people. Nobody turned on her. Oh, yeah. No, they didn't turn on her. Um, I didn't do it, but if I did, I wouldn't have taken a car. They clearly knew how to get back into the gated community by foot, so they should have gone initially by foot. They got in there by foot? I don't know. That minivan with the hidden license plate, they couldn't track that shit to nothing. Yeah. I was thinking about that in one of the other cases that we Mm -hmm. just recently did. I was like, why does she use her own car? Yeah, I ain't do it, but if I did, you also need to, you can't assume that men know what to do in high-stress situations. Men fold real easy. You should have trained him up to know, trained your man up to know, to not sign, don't sign shit when you talk to the police. They have to go get a warrant from the judge to check that storage unit. And then when they, when you don't give them permission, you come right, they'd have nothing to arrest you. You come right to me, we clear out that storage unit. And by the time they get a warrant, even if it's less than 24 hours, if they clear out that that storage unit, guess what? There's nothing to be found. I ain't do it, but if I did, I wouldn't have been such a bitter Betty. Girl, all you had to do is sit back and watch him struggle you telling me he got a new fiancé and a baby on the way and can't pay the mortgage? Girl, you are living good. And I would have just crossed my arms and watched that man fall. You think you better without me? Try it. Let me see you do it. If you so much better, that's, sometimes that's the sweetest revenge. It's just not doing anything and watching people fall on their face because they're going to every time. Uh, parole or no parole? I was struggling. I was struggling if she was even a murderess, but we have had cases where the conspiracy yeah. makes you a murderess. So I decided to let her rock. Um, but yeah, she back out here living her life. I bet she's not working with kids no more. And if she was smart, okay, Tazzy, I got a fun. I didn't do it, but if I did. You've got a nice portfolio. You know that you've got a lot of money. You have a nice little nest egg, and you're going away to prison for 10 years. What would you do to set yourself up for when you get out of prison? Hopefully she's got more people she can count on, like these two niggas who did a bid for her. And maybe Airbnb that spot out or rent it out and just have that money stat. You take a cut, you let that dude put that in a high-interest-bearing account. 
So as she continues to add money in there, it continues to earn money. And then when it's coming out, it's going to multiply 10 years. It's a lot of time to let that money multiply. And the more money you put in there. Uh-huh. And then you just give yourself a set allowance while you're in prison? Yeah, probably. So ain't nobody got to take care of me. But you got to take it easy. You can't be in there living lavish. Live a modest lifestyle, and a modest prison lifestyle. So that shit can go out there and earn money. And you be ready when you got out. You got you got something waiting on you. You can come home. And it's all yours. Now you, your lease ends the day I get released. And I've got a place to stay. Got money. She'll probably still have to get a job. Or maybe she ain't had no probation or nothing like that. Maybe she don't have any terms. And you've heard it first, friends, from your in-house financial advisor. All right, y'all, let's go ahead and read some reviews so that we can get out of here. If you would like to leave us a review, you can. Anywhere that you're listening to right now, make sure that you go ahead and press the follow button so that you get automatic updates when we have new episodes dropping every single Friday. This is, you're at Thanksgiving, and I know you're Black Friday. You're probably Black Friday shopping with your family. Please go ahead and put them on to Sisters Who Kill. Go on their phones, go on your auntie and them phone and tell them how to get to the podcast. Show them what the app look like. Tell them every Friday is going to pop up so they can listen as well. This one says, Shannon Crawley, five stars by Pimbid. I apologize if this sounds stupid. Heard about your show from Crime Junkies. This is the first time I have ever given a review or a star. Which is a lot because I listen to Crime Junkies every week. People be saying, get a show from this. No, you didn't. Because I would have known if Ashley and Britt shouted me the fuck out. Baby, I would have known. Maybe in the Crime Junkies discussion group or something like that. But anyways, I heard about your show from Crime Junkies. Or maybe they're talking about like fellow crime crime enthusiasts. Because baby, Ashley and Britt to come hit me up. Okay? Them some cool white girls. All right. Sorry. (laughs) Heard about your show from Crime Junkies. This is the first time I've ever given a review or star. Please do not change a thing about you. I've binge-listened to you you and your show twice and have been hooked from your very first episode. You two are amazing. Don't listen to the haters. Your moms must be amazing women also, and I'm very proud of you. Maybe someday you'll do interviews or something. All of your episodes are five stars. Thank you for your time. Linda Cape Cod. Yeah, a couple of Ma. interviews out there, actually. We got our interview with Apple. We got our interview with Erica Cobb. We got our interview with Spotify, How to Make a Podcast. Yeah, go do some digging. You'll find some content. Mm-hmm. We be out here. And if you have a favorite podcast that you think that we should be on, tell them to hit us <laughs> up. We're available. We've got another one coming up that'll be, I don't know when it's dropping because mm-hmm. we haven't even recorded mm-hmm. yet, that but I'm one. super excited about that one. Um, this review says, Konnichiwa. Sisters who kill. Yes, ladies. Yes. Your podcast is my shit. My sister introduced me to your podcast last year and I've been an avid listener ever since. I want you to know that you are being heard internationally. I live in Japan and I want to thank you for sharing American true life crime stories. I think that listening to your show keeps me centered and balanced when it comes to listening about the good and evil people of the world. I just want to say thank you, sisters, for bringing this podcast to life for me. I'm far away from home, and you ladies make me feel connected as a black woman in a foreign language country. Thank you for being aware 
of one of your life's callings and for making it happen. You are awesome people. Love from Japan, Micah. Thank you, Micah. Yeah. We didn't know this was our calling. I just Mm -hmm. did an interview with Social Proof. Talking about how she linked into it. We're doing all right. And then we've got some super exciting things coming that we cannot announce yet, but I am so excited for the holiday season. And I know Taz is as well. So stick around, y'all. All All right, y'all, let's go home. If you want to follow us, you can. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram, Sisters Who Kill Pod, on Twitter, X, Sisters Who Kill, on Facebook, Sisters Who Kill Podcast, on TikTok, Sisters Who Kill Podcast. Also on Facebook, there's a private discussion group where we get into all of the nitty-gritty of cases. We talk about current events. People give their theories, and those are always really fun. Last week, People really went in about Shannon and how Jameer ain't shit and how everybody thinks that Jameer had a bigger hand in the case. And so hearing all those theories, going back and forth with friends that are like-minded and are in the true crime community, I guess, was really fun. And I am super excited to chit-chat with all of you guys and to connect with you all. Taz and I are both in the discussion group, so you can connect with us. Taz sometimes comments if she feels like it. I'm in, I do a lot more liking than I do commenting, but I've been trying to be active lately. Somebody was talking about Dance 360. I thought you would have commented. She just sent the ha-ha. I said, okay, she at least saw it. Definitely do that there. You must answer the questions to get in. Do you have anything else, friend? Talk to us, we talk back. Bye.